We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and my name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined by my co-host, Hannah McCleary. Today, in celebration of NADOC Week, we are joined by Professor Maggie Walter to discuss her research into social and health inequalities faced by Indigenous populations in Australia. So, Hannah, I was hoping that you could introduce yourself in a bit more detail and also our guest. So my name's Hannah. I'm currently at the University of Tasmania in my third year of a combined Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Laws degree. Um, And I'm also a Palawa woman from here in Tasmania. Um, So today we're joined by Professor Maggie Walter, who is Professor of Sociology at the University of Tasmania. Maggie, do you just want to introduce where you're from? Yes, certainly. I'm also a Palawa woman. Uh, So I am from the Briggs family from the northwest, which... um, I descended from the Parabina people in northeastern Tasmania, up around Kepuskuna country, as are nearly all Aboriginal people in Tasmania. That, of course, is no accident. It's important for people when we're talking about Palawa that people realise that we all come from the same area and the reason we come from the same area is because the only people who survived colonisation were the descendants of women who had been kidnapped by sealers and the women who were kidnapped by sealers were those from the northeast nations. Yeah, excellent. So just jumping right into our content, health inequity is a huge issue in Australia between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. Um, On average, an Indigenous person's life expectancy is 10 years less than their non-Indigenous counterparts. Um, And as well as this, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples represent a significant number of Australians suffering with chronic conditions, such as respiratory and digestive diseases, despite actually only representing 3% of the population. So Maggie, what do you believe are some of the social determinants of health that impact these statistics? And is it important to understand these factors so that Australia can address them? Yes, it is. But I'm going to wind the conversation back a little bit um, because all of your listeners now will be very familiar with um, inequities and inequalities in health and probably in some of the other areas. So I know that Aboriginal babies um, tend to be born low weight. They'll know that Aboriginal children have more hospitalisations than sicknesses. They'll know that um, Aboriginal people are more likely to have diabetes and more likely to die younger. This is really well known. And remarkably, everybody knows the what. And the what is repeated again and again and again in government reports. And in fact, almost all the research is about just repeating the what. And I'm not sure why we keep doing it, because we already know the what. Actually, I do know why we keep doing it, because if we keep doing the what, it means that we can stop um, asking why. So I want to just focus a little bit on the fact that everybody in Australia knows these inequities. They are really well known. They are the portrait, the data portrait of how Australia as a nation state and as a population, non-Indigenous Australians, makes sense of Aboriginal people. So we are cast in what we call terms of 5D data. So that's data that focuses on our difference, 
It started that focuses on our disadvantage. Data that focuses on our dysfunction, data that focuses on our deficit, and data that really just sort of situates us as the problem. So if you focus deeply on the Aboriginal child, the Aboriginal family, the Aboriginal community with these health inequities, you can really keep the conversation into terms of basically what is it, is it that's wrong with Aboriginal people that despite government support and intentions and policies, they're still so sick and so poor and so likely to die. So I'd like to expand the conversation a little bit wider than that and say, well, are Aboriginal people the only people that suffer like this? If you look around the world, you'll say, well, no. If you look at New Zealand, after all, New Zealand, you'll find that Maori people have remarkably similar patterns of health and health inequality. If you look at the US, you'll find First Nations people have remarkably similar patterns of health inequality. If you look at Canada, you'll find that First Nations and Métis people have remarkably similar patterns of health inequality. So as a sociologist, I'm trained to identify patterns and patterns in data. And you know that if you have a pattern, that there's a social explanation for those patterns. The question that always occurs to me is, what is it that Māori, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, First Nations, First Native Americans and Métis people have in common? And the answer, of course, that is Anglo-colonisation. That's the only thing we have in common. Very different cultures, very different backgrounds, very different histories. Everything else is different. That's the thing we have in common. So if you then extrapolate that to say, well, there's only two ways of explaining that. Either colonisation itself and what's happened since and the way people are situated in society is at the root cause of these inequalities, or the poor old English were just unlucky enough to colonise four completely different geographic locations where the people were just naturally sick and naturally unable to regain health. And that's the concern of my research, is to refocus on the why and especially to question the use of data themselves. So I think that's a really interesting and important point. Um, what kind of methodologies do you use to get to that why? Uh, well, I'm quantitative, so I largely use data, uh, population data sets or survey data sets. And yes, it, it's commonly, and it's true, that qualitative data allows you to get a wider understanding. But it's not true that quantitative data can't be used. What we have is a very, very narrow way of using quantitative data in relation to Indigenous people. And it's at risk of getting worse because of our focus on administrative data sets, the open data sharing legislation, the idea that somehow if you link up enough admin data, um, such as, you know, records from health departments, records from schools, records from the justice centres, that you will get a big ball of data which will answer any question. And the answer, of course, no, it won't. Because you haven't got a big ball of data, for Indigenous peoples particularly, all you've got is a very, very long, thin string of 5D data, data that is always focused on what is wrong with the people who are virtually the, the people who, who have to bear the burden of, the, um, of health. The other thing, of course, is that you need to do the quantitative because Western people love a statistic. You cannot persuade government to change policy on the basis of qualitative data. 
for some reason, if it's in a numeric form, it is taken as much more robust evidence than any other form of evidence. And so my push around data is to break open what we call the paradox of Indigenous data. So that on one hand, we have huge amount of data, which is all about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but only under a very, very narrow set of parameters. On the other hand, if we look at the data that Indigenous peoples ourselves need to improve the health of our communities, it's not there. It doesn't exist. Why? Because it's not in the interest of the nation state. So even though places like the Bureau of Statistics are meant to collect the data that Australia as a nation needs, whose needs are prioritised and whose purposes the data serves is almost never, ever Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. What's the state of Aboriginal health in Tasmania? We don't know. Why don't we know? Because the data aren't collected. And the records that we do have are poor quality and incomplete. Why? Because people in hospitals, administrative staff and others, seem reluctant to ask patients if they're Aboriginal or not. And that seems to be more around worrying whether a non-Aboriginal person will be upset to be asked if they're Aboriginal than anything else. So we have very, very poor quality records and there seems to be very little we can do about it. And even if we do link up some admin data, again, we get that focus on the people who are bearing health inequalities rather than the circumstances that might lead to those. Thanks for that, Maggie. I think you make a, a lot of really important points there. And I think that you're absolutely right that understanding the sensitivities of around how that data is collected and why that data is collected and the aim and, and, and how those data sets is a really important question to be asking. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and stay tuned for in just a moment we'll be talking more with our expert guest, Professor Maggie Walter. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Hannah McCleary. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Today, in celebration of NADOC Week, we are joined by Professor Maggie Walter to discuss Indigenous health and inequality. I'm joined with Hannah McCleary, who's um, our Indigenous Voice Manager at That's What I Call Science. So what are we going to be talking about in this segment of the show? So um, we've sort of already discussed that medical research has continuously fallen short in supporting and targeting the risks within Indigenous populations. And as we discussed before, a lower life expectancy and disproportionate disease burden has been observed in Native American populations, um, Maori populations in New Zealand, you know, not just um, here in Australia with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, so Maggie, in your opinion, why do you feel that our health systems continuously fail our Indigenous populations all over the world? And what should be done to address this? They continue to fail because they are more interested in collecting the what than the why. And we know that what um, people from Māori, First Nations, etc. people share is that all are marginalised minorities in their own lands, all are disadvantaged, all are politically disenfranchised. So also have their, their culture and traditions pejoratively framed. But the similarity of those things really go a long way to um, explaining health inequality. So we have what we're talking about is very poor people living in very different disadvantaged circumstances who have no political power to change. Uh, what is happening, and more likely when they want change, will be met with stigma and bias that somehow they themselves 
are the problem and all they need to do is stop behaving like Aboriginal people and stop be living like Aboriginal people and essentially <laughs> stop being Aboriginal people, then that will solve the problem. And of course it won't. We know, I mean, I know from some of my own research that the idea of the sort of the, the good Aboriginal citizen doesn't hold up when you put it into the research frame. So we did a study in Darwin a couple of years ago and we talked to Aboriginal people. We talked to a large sample, about over 480 Aboriginal people in Darwin about their experiences. And when we stacked up all the literature and data and one of the models we looked at, it showed that it didn't matter how good an Aboriginal person's job was, how well educated they were, they were just as likely to experience racism and prejudice as people who weren't. So it doesn't change that. That's a sort of a bit of a myth that sort of somehow if people do all these things, then everything, all the problems can disappear. I think that's a really interesting and important point that a lot of the time um, Western values tend to say well the problem isn't us or our systems the problem is that community that are experiencing this inequity and have these poor statistics what's wrong with them um so to ask a slightly provocative question potentially because a number of people and i don't know if hannah or maggie you've experienced this before but a number of people might say that this is just a classist issue that refugees experience similar statistics or similar problems um, and I wonder Maggie because of your wealth of experience com looking at indigenous populations from across the world you know is this simply explained by class is this simply explained by displacement or is that just you know again a myth the similarities expressed by around health inequalities with some refugee populations or migrant populations really just relate to shared disadvantage and perhaps shared stigma and bias but they don't explain the whole of the difference. And you need to see that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander are uniquely positioned in the Australian nation state uh, social hierarchy. I run a little experiment with my students whenever I teach them about race. I, I get a, a, a set of eight or 10 nationalities really, rather than race, and ask people to rate them by their social status. And of course, people always resist and they sort of say, well, not in Australia, we're egalitarian. I say, no, 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 but let's just have a go at this. And we, we have a look at white South Africans, white New Zealanders, Italians, Greeks, Lebanese, people from uh, different, a number of African countries, Mali, etc. What I find is that even though it changes slightly, that everybody completely agrees where that social hierarchy sits. And it doesn't matter how badly some of these other groups go, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people always come in as number 10. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people suffer from extreme social and cultural disregard in Australia. And a lot of that is probably uh, settler resentment. did a review for a book called The Inconvenient Indian once. And this is where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people sit. We're, we're inconvenient, especially in Tasmania because our very existence is a constant reminder that this land is actually the land of our people for 60,000 years and that the nation state or the state of Tasmania exists because of colonisation. Now, I actually think that that could be a positive, that instead of feeling threatened by our long history and what has happened in the past, whether it be, you know, the 
see the fuss at the moment over the Crowther statues and whether to keep them or to, or to bring them down. I would like to see, I think, when we could get rid of some of that stigma, if people could actually, all Tasmanians could feel pride in the fact that this is one of the longest inhabited parts of the world with the longest continuous continuing culture. It's amazing. I'm very proud to be a descendant, but I would actually welcome fellow Tasmanians to share in some of that pride and feel that this is their state rather than they are living in an English outpost, which is what it still feels like much of the time. I think that's a really important point to finish our second segment on, which is really highlighting that there's an opportunity to celebrate rather than to shy away from. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking to Professor Maggie Walter. Join us for our last segment in just a moment. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Today we're talking about Indigenous health and inequalities faced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples for NAIDOC Week. My name is Hannah McCleary and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Professor Maggie Walter from the University of Tasmania. Going in the direction of your personal journey, what sort of influenced your decision to go down this career path and you know, do what you are studying at the moment? It's an interesting position. You know, When I, I came to higher degree by research, I actually did my degree mainstream. So my PhD is looking at soul and uh, married mothers. So that's when I really learned all about data analysis. And I made that decision deliberately to do mainstream because I already knew from my colleagues' experiences that if you're an Aboriginal person and you do your PhD in an Aboriginal topic, people will presume that you did an easy one that somehow you've got an extra lift along the way, that it's not a proper PhD. And given that the PhD, and if you're any HDR students out there, listen to this, the PhD is really just your qualifying certificate. It's like your ticket if you're a mechanic or an electrician. It is what says to your peers, yeah, you know enough to be counted as a sociologist or a psychologist, an academic. So it's not where you solve the world's problems. It's where you pick up all the skills you need to be a high-quality researcher and academic. Over the years, I initially did mainstream, but gradually I found that I just could not stay away from Indigenous-related issues, especially when I saw some of the rubbish research and the harmful research that was coming out of our universities, not necessarily the University of Tasmania, and some pretty dodgy research come out of there as well, and some good stuff. So I had to go in, I virtually had to intervene. I virtually just could not help myself to say, we have to have some different voices in here because as well-intentioned as many of the non-Indigenous researchers were, their complete lack of understanding of who Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were and our position within their society meant that all they were doing was reinforcing all the negatives and reinforcing the problem. And we know their research has been useless, how long have we had policies to assist Aboriginal people? Well, I think I did some research that found that the first formal inquiry into the condition of the native was in Victoria in 1858. And if you take out the colonial type language, what they found, and that was all about the what, is not very dissimilar to what the Overcoming Indigenous Disadvantage Report looked like in 2018-2020. We just have a repetition of the same thing for closing in on 200 years now without any appreciable gain. 
and the closing the gap policy, the fact that after 10 years, it was shown to be a large failure, and now we have the refreshed closing the gap, is indicative of just that ongoing failure. In a political science term, it's fracastomania, which is a policy mindset which has made a comfortable adjustment to failure. At least in the closing the gap refresh, which has a number of specific health targets, we now have a coalition of Aboriginal peak organisations being an equal partner with uh, COAG, or whatever COAG becomes, to actually bring those into place. And then we might actually see some change. We might see some policy that will actually address some of the causes and the whys rather than the relatively uninformed focus on the what. Maggie, I wonder if I could ask you a potentially personal question. You're a distinguished professor, which is a really high accolade to achieve, not only as an Indigenous community member, but as a woman, because women in academia is still, you know, to get to the highest level is actually quite challenging. And to me, listening to that, you know, you would have been coming not only as a woman in academia, but as an Indigenous woman challenging Westerners who were doing research into Indigenous populations. You know, what was that experience like? What challenges did you encounter? And that sounds to me like that would have taken a lot of guts, um, particularly in the early parts of your career. Look, it does. And I think to a certain extent, while I've explained quite rationally why I chose to do mainstream work, a significant underlying factor was that I'd worked in a number of jobs in the public service prior to enter academia where I'd been in Indigenous-specific jobs. I knew what happens to people who are placed in these positions. So you are patronised and minimalised. Uh, you were given all responsibility but no power. Deeply frustrating. But when I decided to get back in, I just couldn't stand by anymore. And, and I was lucky. And many Aboriginal researchers are not so lucky. I had tenure, which means that you can have a certain confidence at your contract. And I know many of my colleagues around Australia speak up and uh, next time their contract comes up for renewal or do research that um, is challenging, they don't get reinstated. So it's a way of silencing that challenging voice. So it is quite difficult. You know, I have had to stand up in a room of 300 mostly white anthropologists and tell them that the decision to refer to Aboriginal people as an ethnicity is not the anthropologist's call. It's our call. We decide whether we want to be called an ethnicity or a race. And we go with race, thanks. So I have had a lot of hostility. But I've had a lot of support as well. And I've always took it, especially as I got older, and more recently now as I'm quite old and, and have risen through my career quite remarkably, considering that it's my job to stand up and take some of the bullets because I can say things that I won't suffer repercussions for in a way a more junior colleague would. I can challenge those who have used to having the authority in a way many of my other colleagues can't without actually, you know, a bit like the women challenging the misogynistic judges in the high court, you know, you pay a price uh, very often. I have to say, in credit to the University of Tasmania, I have always been supported, and particularly in the School of Social Sciences. So I have never felt that my job or anything else was under threat within this university. But certainly I have felt the cold winds of hostility and disapproval uh, on conference room floors quite a number of times. And also in the feedback I get in some of the articles and things, the reviewers' comments, and even some of their grants that I've gone for, you'll get a reviewer that instead of actually assessing your proposal, will just argue with you about something you wrote in something else. 
this is not a, an even playing field. So just quickly, Maggie, to finish up, do you have any advice for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students pursuing research and careers in the health sector or sociology sector or even university generally? Because I know it can be, you know, difficult to keep the motivation up, but it is really important that we have, you know, more students pursuing higher education. So, yeah, do you have any advice for students in those positions? Yes. Surround yourself with people who care and people who understand. So... I've been lucky again through this career to have mostly not many Aboriginal people to start with, but I've had lots of Aboriginal colleagues across Australia and across the world. And I've still worked with all those people and they provide a lot of strength to me when I'm out there in that middle of the hostile environment that I know that they reaffirm that, yes, what I'm doing is okay. Because your confidence can be quickly struck out from under you when you get attacked on a regular basis. So for students, make sure you know other Aboriginal students. Make sure the uh, non-Aboriginal students you are working with understand. Also understand it's not your job to educate them. It's their job to educate themselves. Uh, I'm sure as an Aboriginal person you are very exhausted and being constantly asked to educate people about even basic stuff. I think that's an excellent point and um, that, you know, there's a really, there's a chorus happening in Australia but around the world more broadly at the moment of how can we be an ally and I think that that's a, an exceptionally important point that Maggie makes that educate our, ourselves first what is happening potentially why that is happening confront the uncomfortable areas of what that means um, for our own inheritance for whatever part that might have played and how we can better support people to have a platform to share that that their voice as it stands now and I think like Maggie talking to you has been really inspiring to think about all of those times that you would have had to stand up at a conference or you would have um, experienced microaggressions or flat-out aggressions from reviewers um, and have really you know stood up and taken those bullets and I think that it's very remarkable so thank you so much for sharing that experience with us for taking the time to talk to us today. I'd also like to thank my co-host Hannah McCleary for um, organising our NADOC content and indeed being our Indigenous Voice Manager on the show. It's really so worthwhile for us to have your input um, and for you to take the time to ensure that our show is giving a platform to Indigenous sciences across Tasmania but also across Australia. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. If you want to get in touch with us, you can on all social media platforms um, just to give us feedback or you know, if you want to find out make suggestions of what we could cover in the future. Thanks for listening and until next time.